Amen. Welcome home. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Good morning. All right. And we, uh, I say welcome home just about every week. And it's not just to this place. It's not just to this family. It is to the heart of Jesus Christ. Um, and that uh, plays right into where we are with the message this morning. Uh, before we dive in, we've got a few things to do. Welcome, kids. We're glad to have you with us. Um, Luke 15 is where we are, but before we get there, I uh, have a few uh, housekeeping things. Uh, first of all, uh, the Bethany Belugas tasted their first victory on Tuesday night. Yeah. Glory to God. That was great. Uh, need all our ringers and uh, all our other players out there. Um, we have enough players to populate a small city. We are glad for that. We are rejoicing in that. We get to show uh, the other teams what it means to really love each other. So come on out, 745 uh, Tuesday night. Uh, we always play on the middle field. Um, so also, uh, we have our kids with us uh, this morning. We're so glad you're here. I'm going to call you up in a minute, share some things with you. Some great and glorious things happened this week uh, because of God's faithfulness and your generosity. Uh, we were able as a church uh, for his glory to pay for a surgery uh, we were able to uh, fill a, a young, engaged, hungry couple's stomachs uh, for a little bit uh, and send them on their way uh, home, which we, they had had an accident here in town. Um, uh, I'm glad. I want lines going out the door. I want this to be known as a church where if everybody says no, if everybody says uh, you're not the kind of person we want to help, uh, that they would come here uh, because... Uh, Jesus, and we'll see this week in and week out, loves the people that uh, are disenfranchised, um, that are rejected, um, and that the church historically uh, has uh, distanced itself from, even though he, he calls us to embrace them. So uh, that's what we're about. Um, mm, Ryan mentioned uh, the numbers on the back of the bulletin and that uh, they're nothing to boast about. And, and they aren't. See, uh, I don't want to hammer on you, but I do, you, you, you need to know, uh, as the family of God, this bottom number, that uh, year-to-date, a budget amount needed, um, that needs to be smaller than the number above it, okay, which is the amount that's given. Now, I know that we, and you can see by the real estate and uh, the empty chairs, that a lot of the family is traveling, we have uh, big summer plans. A lot of people go visit families, take vacations. Giving typically will, will dip a little bit and get softer in the summertime. But we need to keep the trains running here on time. And, and for us to be able to uh, take care of advancing God's kingdom and paying for surgeries and feeding the hungry and all of that, um, you and I need to be as generous for the kingdom as God has been to us. So uh, one other thing. Uh, two, actually. Uh, with Children's Church, we're going to be working into a new paradigm of check-in. Uh, things are always getting more exciting. Um, and you'll see a booth outside when you come in. We're going to ask you to check in um, with your kids uh, ahead of time. And so then, uh, during the service, when we do have Children's Church every week, except for the last week of the month, it'll go so much smoother. So you hear about it, you'll see it, we'll do it, we'll try it out. We'll, I think it's going to it's going to work great. Also, uh, as you know, our hearts are 
uh, both glad and breaking uh, that Matt and Ari are going to be on their way to the next thing that God has called them to. Um, and that's coming sooner than we'd like to uh, look at. But uh, so, you know, there is a search committee uh, together working very hard and very prayerfully. Ryan McBride is chairing that. Uh, some great people on that committee. It is going wonderfully well. Um, and we are uh, in a search for a youth pastor. So um, also, if you're not frequently frequenting faith, Facebook, I haven't seen Bistro is, uh, is busy this morning, but she got engaged this week. So uh, yeah, to Jeremy Ishida, it's wonderful. We love weddings and yeah, yeah. That was kind of sparse. That was like golf Golf applause. Uh, anyway, so uh, pray for her. Uh, Ari, you are like flirting with your due date, right? Oh, we're so glad. The more Patrick's in the world, the better. Pray for her. Uh, we had a, a little scare with Elise at the softball game and her pregnancy. Uh, thank you. The whole bench was interceding in prayer, and it looks like everything's going to be just fine with their little girl, and, and we're excited. Uh, new life is, is a good thing. God is having babies all the time, and he's having them here, people coming to faith, and, and so that's a symbol of that, new life. So we love it. We love it. Um, because the kids are not going to Children's Church, I'd invite you all to come up and we could chat a little bit about what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you'd normally go to Children's Church, come to the scary man on the stairs and we'll talk for a minute. Okay. Good. How you doing? Good. Sit down right here. Come on. All right. Gracie, I'm going to need you here. Matt, I need you close by. And I'll tell you why in a second. Come on up, everybody. Now, are they beautiful? Come on. Yeah. You guys are looking good. Yeah, you're running. Uh, you know what? Sometimes when we grow up, we forget how to run to the altar. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's something we need to remember. Winter, how you doing? You want to spin around, show everybody your pretty dress? Yeah, just spin around. There you go. Sit down. Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay. Uh, show of hands. Who is like the older child in the family? Do you have young, anybody who has younger brothers and sisters? Raise your hand. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, now, um, now, anybody who is older and you're more well-behaved than your younger brother and sister, raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Matt, you were fighting it, but you know it's true, don't you? All right, now, I'd like you to share with me, this is not paddling because it's like part of the pre-message. So, what are some of the things that your younger brothers and sisters get into? Are they ever naughty? Grace, what do they do? I don't know. You don't know? You don't know. Yes, you do. Anything? No? How about you, Matt? You're, you have younger sister and two younger brothers. What do they sometimes get into that they shouldn't? Um, sometimes they take things from me. They take things from you? While I'm at school. What do they take? Things. Things. He told me. Things. Yeah. What do you got, sir? I say must not. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. So even though some of your younger brothers and sisters... 
they, they do naughty things. Do you still love them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you do. I have no you help in your name. You help. Yes. All right. We're a, we're, we're a church that believes in speaking in tongues. I don't personally do it, but, you know, if you do, God bless you. Um, so, here's a question for you. Yes, sweetie. I'm the same old not. I was going to the house and talking to my friend. Okay. That's great. Now, if your younger brother or sister walked out the front door... Your name is not. Yeah. I know. So if your younger brother or sister walks out the front door and keeps walking and gets lost and can't find their way home, how many of you older brothers or sisters would, would run after them, would, would go find them, would bring them? Yeah, you would. How about you? Yeah. Would you do it? I did I do it. You did it? It's scary in my skirt in my book. And always not. Yeah, because it's scary out there. You would bring them home. You know why? Because that's what Jesus does for all of us. He loves the older kids. I don't know. A scary noise and always not. Yeah. So Jesus, Jesus loves the older kids that obey the rules. And he loves the younger brothers and sisters who are naughty. And when the younger brothers and sisters who are naughty get lost... We go find them. Why? Because we love them. Yeah, Jesus does it. Okay, everybody in. We're going to do Jesus on three. Can you help me with that? All the hands in. Ready? Ready? Come on in. Hands in the middle. Jesus on three. One, two, three. Jesus. Okay, go home. Go back. I'm going to yell at your parents for a little while. I bought a kitchen timer. I did. And that's like mercy because I'm, I'm trying. I want to love you better. I want to serve you better. So uh, this is going to get you home before tomorrow. Um, Luke 15, we're in a series called My Life Story. And, and through this series, and I urge you to, to be with us each week because uh, Jesus is going to be telling stories that we're going to dive deep into. We're going to see ourselves as, as we truly are. We're going to see him as he truly is. He's going to call us to himself and offer to write the next chapter in the story of our lives in a way that we couldn't hope for or imagine. And so it's a very exciting time. This is Prodigal God, Act 2. Now, we started... Um, we started last week right at the opening bell. Uh, I want to tell you that I've learned a lot about this scripture through the teachings and writings of Pastor Tim Keller in New York. Uh, he has written a book by the title Prodigal God, and I have to recommend that to you. It's beautiful. It comes to the heart of who God is, what the gospel is, and how we're to respond to it. And uh, much of the teaching that I'm sharing, I, I have learned uh, through the Holy Spirit from his ministry. Uh, so this par- par- parable is typically called the prodigal son. And we looked at the word prodigal and what that means. It means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. And last week we talked about this not only the 
describes the, the younger son, but it also describes the father. He is reckless in his love. He is reckless in his grace. He is extravagant and lavish in his affection, in his forgiveness, in his mercy. And so our God is prodigal in that sense. And we're so glad he is. So that's where we are. And it could also be called the parable of the two lost sons. Because he has two sons. One is lost, the younger son, in seeking his own pleasure. And the older son is lost in religious activity, religious devotion. Now, um, here is the really mind-blowing part. Get this. If we listen to Jesus' words, if we study his word in context, he's saying that the second son, who is lost in religion, is in a far more dangerous spiritual state. Because the younger brother knows he's lost, knows he is far from God, knows he needs repentance, knows he needs to come back to Jesus, knows he needs to come home. The older brother is lost and doesn't know it. Far more dangerous. And yet we in the church, over and over and over again, think the people who are farthest from God, who are in the most dangerous state, are the ones who are living recklessly, carelessly, morally wrecked lives. And, and the shocking thing is, if we're true to the word, we're going to see that Jesus says that those who are trapped in the chains of religious duty, and we're going to unpack that for you, are in a far more dangerous state. So this week we're looking at Act 2. Last week we looked at Act 1. And just so we're on the same page, we're going to quickly recap what happened in Act 1. The father has two sons, the younger of which is very unhappy at home, totally disses his father. Comes up and says, in a sense, Dad, let's play a little game. It's called, let's pretend you were dead. And here's how it goes. Here's what you do. You give me my share of the inheritance, and then you leave me completely alone. Then I go, this is my part of the game, I go to a faraway land and I spend all your money that you just gave me on all the things you would never want for me. In your grace and in your mercy, you would never want this for me. I'm going to spend it and drink until I throw up, wet my pants and tell every guy at the party that I love him. Then I'm going to smoke, snort, shoot, and swallow every drug I can get my hands on. And I'm also going to sleep with everything with a skirt. Oh, and maybe some things that don't. Okay? That's the game. Now, the only thing more startling, more shocking, more outrageous than the son's request is the father's response. He shows him the money. He says, okay, okay. He divides his estate, shows him the money. So the younger son leaves, parties his brains out, goes broke. Things get so bad, he's homeless, he's dumpster diving, he is in a bad state. He realizes his sin. He knows he needs to come home. He knows that's where true life is. But he also feels so wrecked that he doesn't deserve that. So he comes up with this deal. I'm going to unpack this deal for my father. I'll offer to be a day laborer for him because I know that I've blown it. I've crossed the line. My status cannot be reinstated as beloved son. So if I'm a day laborer, at least I can be near him part of the time. And that's what I'll go. I'll go and say to him, I'm not worthy. And and this is what I'll do. What he didn't know is the father had been waiting at the end of the driveway every day, watching for his son, longing for his son, pleading with God for his son, praying that his son would come home. 
And just as he sees the outline of his son in the distance, he can't contain himself. He goes off sprinting. He's hurtling fences. He's outrunning chariots. The theme to chariots of fire is playing in the background. It's very undignified. And he runs. And what does he do? He smothers his son with hugs and kisses before, before the son can even start to repent. And then when the son starts to unpack his, his deal, let me be a day laborer, he, he won't hear any, anything of it. He interrupts. He says to his servants who have run after him, because they're shocked that he's running, right? And, and he says, put the best robe on him. The best robe belongs to the father. So not only does he reinstate him as the beloved son, he clothes clothes him in the glory of the father. And he says, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and we're going to blow it out. We're going to have the best, hugest party you have ever seen. I want to kill the fatted calf. I want Kobe beef. I want Dom Perignon. And I want want Beyonce headlining, okay? We're sparing no expense. All before the younger son even thinks about, even tries to, even can clean up his life. The party is thrown because he's coming home. He doesn't have to do anything for the father to love him. He doesn't have to achieve anything. He doesn't have to show that, that he's quit this, he's quit that. He's home, and that's enough. Now, if we were to ask most people to tell the story of the prodigal son, that's where we'd stop. At Beyonce, that's where we'd stop, right? Because tendency is, within our Christian circles, to think of the prodigal son as the story of the younger brother. The story of the younger brother. Most of us, truth be told, probably look at the shorter passage about the older brother uh, like an extra, like an add-on. Like you go to a nice restaurant and you order something and they bring this thing. There's a beat that's carved into the shape of a rose. Now, I would submit to you that you are never to eat beets at any time under any circumstances, but the beet being there or not being there doesn't change the meal. Now, here's where we're wrong. The story of the older brother is not the beet on the plate. It's the main course. It is the main course. It is why Jesus told this story, and the text tells us that. Jesus is not only telling this story to the immoral outsiders. He is primarily telling this story to the moral insiders, the church people, who are destroying their own souls and the souls of the people around them. Okay, so we have to look at the context. If we don't look at the context, we end up misunderstanding the point of the whole story and proof texting our way through the Bible. We can't do that. So here we go. Uh, Luke 15, Acts uh, uh, verse 1 and 2. Very important that we look at that because the key to understanding this passage is to understand who's listening. Okay, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Two groups who were listening. First one, tax collectors and sinners. Now, a couple of things about him. These are the worst people you can imagine. These are the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world mess-ups, okay? No doubt. First, two things you need to know. They are morally, they are the worst. These are the people your parents warned you about. These are the people that historically the church has rejected, pushed outside, 
even though Jesus calls us again and again and again to embrace them, they are social and religious outcasts. They are guilty and they know it. Second thing you need to know about them. They've heard that their lives, all their lives, that they are scum, that God is not interested in them, that if God was picking a team, he would not pick them because they have crossed the line one too many times. Their behavior has disqualified for them from God. There's no forgiveness for them. There's no new life for them. There's no love for them. There's no hope for them, right? They've, they've messed up one too many times. And the second group that is listening are the very people who have made them feel this way. Okay, who are they? Verse 2, here we go. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, now the Pharisees and the scribes are the other extreme. They're kind of the super religious people. Okay, now, so that we don't get confused when I say the word religious. I'm not talking about following Jesus. Following Jesus is not religion. Religion is the checklist. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It does nothing to transform the heart. It just modifies the behavior, right? It is the external. The Pharisees and the scribes followed Jesus all through his earthly ministry. Here's the problem. They had, trans- they had conformed their outsides to the law, but had no transformed hearts. No love. It is the law without love. That's what we're talking about. Christianity is not religion. Following Jesus is not religion. Religion is not following Jesus. So if your friends, when you invite them, say, I don't like organized religion, say, following Jesus is different, and the place I go is very disorganized. So come. Okay. Pharisees and the scribes, they only listen to instrumental hymns because amplified music is of the devil, right? Uh, They never watch PG-13 movies uh, because movies are of the devil. You got it. They win yard of the month. Their yard is always beautiful. Um, The externals are very important. Appearance is very important. And they hate dandelions because dandelions are evil, of the devil, right? Exactly. Good. You're getting it. They attend 19 Bible studies every week. They have three quiet times before their breakfast of Fiber One because they're perpetual constipated. And um, they never thought the Saturday Night Live sketch of the church lady was funny because they didn't get the joke. Um, They have uh, an Obama is the Antichrist bumper sticker right below the five silver fish they have on their minivan. One for each of their four kids and one for the kid that they've adopted for, for Compassion International in Uganda, which I support, but they're all about, uh, all about showing people that. They love the Left Behind series because it made them fantasize about being raptured away from all the evil, disgusting, sinful people that they're not successful enough to avoid in this life. Okay, bought the whole series and the videos. They are upright and uptight, and because they are, they do all these religious things. They expect favors from God because of their righteousness. They are expecting God to treat them differently. They are earning God's approval, right? They are currying his favor, and and that's what they're going to be. That's what they're going to be. They're going to be the insiders, and, and this is why they throw a hissy fit when Jesus treats the tax collectors and the sinners, the worst of the worst, as if they're insiders. He has meals with them. They run to him. He speaks to them. He loves on them. 
And it is in response to this smug self-righteousness of the Pharisees who grumble and say, who is this man who even eats with, receives sinners and eats with them? It's in response to this that Jesus tells the parable. Okay? So, you can put yourself in the position of the Pharisees and the scribes as they hear this. Because their heart is the point of the story. Their heart is the point of the story. And I want you to hear it as they must have heard it. When they hear that the father is going running, they're saying, you bet the father's running. He can't wait to beat that no good sinner up and and, and just beat his tushy. That younger brother's about to get his comeuppance. And only older brothers use the word come up. And so if that's one of your favorite words, it's time to repent. So you see how shocked they are when the father in verse 20 runs to the son, not to beat him about the head and the neck, but his father saw him, was moved with compassion and love, ran and embraced him and kissed him. They are so totally confused. They are so totally messed up about this. And here's where we go. In this really ticked off state that they're hearing this, Jesus goes into act two. Here it is. Pick it up in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. Now I just want to say this. Okay, he's way away in the field. He hears the music. He hears the dancing. This is not a quiet gathering. This is a blowout Hysteric. This is a wild, this is a wonderful raving party. They, he's hearing the music. He's hearing the dancing away, far away. They must be crumping or something. I don't know. But maybe they are. But they, they, it's a huge celebration. And none of the neighbors are calling the cops to issue a noise complaint because the neighbors and the cops are at the party. Everybody knows except him. He has to find it out secondhand. Here's how he does it. And he called one of his servants, and he asked him what these things meant. 27, he said to him, the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And the older brother's like, shut up. Really? But he was angry, and he refused to go in. He was hacked off. And the Pharisees and the scribes can relate to this. Because they're hacked off too. We'll see why. Look what happens. He was angry, refused to go in. What does the father do? The father came out. The father pursues. Just as he pursued the younger son, he pursues the older son. He comes out again, undignified. The man of the house doesn't leave the celebration, but his son being involved, being at his heart, being in his love, being in his feast. Is that important? The father goes out and the father doesn't say, look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I have had it up to here with your whining, with your killjoy attitude. You know nothing of grace and I'm glad you're out here because if you came into the party, you'd ruin it. So why don't you stay here and stew in your own juice so that we can celebrate what's really worth celebrating. The father doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. He doesn't reprimand. He responds with the same love, with the same grace that he extended to the younger son. And what does the Bible say? What does he say? But the father went out 
to his angry son who refused to come into the celebration. And he entreated him. He pleaded with him. He begged him for his sake, for the father's sake, for everybody's sake, for his joy's sake. But he answered his father, look, look, these many years I've served you. He's saying, look here, look here, old man. He's showing as much disrespect for the father that the younger son did. Do you see it? Do you see it? Look here, old man. Now, if this was me speaking to my father, at this point I'd be spitting out a bath-sized bar of ivory soap that I've been made to bite down on. And my father would say something witty like, "Uh, you had me at look. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So not this father. Not this father. What does the younger son say? Here's what he's saying. It's not about you, dad. It's not about the, it's not about you. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. I told the line. I showed up at church. I volunteered in children's church. I led Awanas. I went to the Bible studies. I did the potlucks. I served the college lunch. I built this. I, I did it all. It's about me. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Okay, we're starting to get a glimpse into his heart, what he really wants, right? But when this son of yours, he has totally distanced, cut himself off from his brother. It's not this brother of mine. It's this son of yours. He can't get far enough away from the brokenness, the sinfulness, the ugliness of his younger brother and the things that he does. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, with prost- you remember you paid for me and for him to go to True Love Waits and, and we went and, and, and True Love didn't wait. He didn't wait. I did. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying... Don't wait. Wait, but if you wait, don't you dare disenfranchise those who fall. As soon as you do, you become the older brother. As soon as you do, you become the older brother. Devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat and calf for him. Grace is not fair. You're not fair. And the father said to him, son, reaffirming his relationship, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he was found. He's saying this, your son, my son, your brother was dead. He's alive. He has new life. He was lost. He's home. He was dead. He's alive. Celebrating this is what matters most to me. You're my son. Why doesn't this matter most to you? Why does this not matter most to you? What is the older son worried about? What is this older son worried about? While the younger son's dirty, he's embarrassing, he's worthless, and you're celebrating him? You should be celebrating me. Have you been dead? Have you been sleeping? Have you not seen my faithfulness, my righteousness? You should be celebrating me. If you're going to pick somebody to be excited about, you celebrate me. 
Over and over again, you see the cost. You're spending the money. Why is he upset? Well, because you go back to the beginning of the story. The father divided up the inheritance. Two-thirds of the inheritance belongs to the older brother. One-third belongs to the younger brother. He gave the one-third away. Now he's welcoming the younger brother in. All this money to pay for the celebration is coming out of the older brother's inheritance. Not only that, he's back in the family. What exists now, the father is going to again divide up at the time of his death. He's, it's costing the older brother. It's costing the older brother. What about me? His appearingly selfless acts of religious obedience are smacking of being selfish. What about me? He's so concerned with himself that he misses the miracle. The miracle is happening in his own household under his nose. He doesn't notice it. He doesn't care. What about me? So what happens? What does the older brother do? Jesus leaves everybody hanging. That's the end of the story. But it's not the end. It's the end of the part Jesus told. Now the answer is going to come at the end of the service. Does the older brother come back in, come home to the father's love, to the father's feast, to fellowship with his younger brother and accept him as Jesus accepts him? Or does he stay out, camp out in the field and and maintain his independence and cling to his self-righteousness and his religion? Well, let's take a look at what's so wrong with the older brother's heart, okay? Since he seems to be living the strict, conservative, seemingly holy life that for many believers is the goal, right? He's keeping all the rules. He's doing all the right things. He's not doing all the wrong things. What is it? Three things that the older brother doesn't understand. Let's look very quickly at them. One, the older brother doesn't understand the law of love. He says, I never disobeyed your commandments. But this is not because he loves the father. It is not because he, he rejoices in the father being happy. It's not because he sees the father wanting the best for his son. It's because much like his younger brother, he is in relationship with the father to get what he wants. The younger brother loved the father's stuff more than the father. The older brother loved the insider relationship so that he can control the father and he's going to earn this through his religious activities. He's done all this stuff. He's done the externals, right? He's done it all. But he didn't understand that he may be fulfilling the letter of the law. He's not fulfilling the love, the spirit of the law. Because in Matthew 22, we look at that, Jesus was approached by a lawyer who's trying to test them. And and he says in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, it's a love story, okay? It's all grounded and rooted and motivated in love. Here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love God your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the son may have been checking off his checklist, do this, do this, do this, burn your CDs, don't do this, right? But he certainly doesn't love his father. He's not motivated out of love for his father, and he certainly isn't motivated out of love for his brother. 
And since we don't only look at the words of Jesus, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers, superpowers, and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, I memorize the entire Bible, and I get it, and I have knowledge, and if I have faith, and it's so as to move, mountains, but I have not love. I am nothing. Verse 3. And if I give away all that I have and I tithe, I double tithe. I triple tithe. I can't give enough. And I deliver up my body to be burned as a martyr. But I have not love. I gain, say it with me, nothing. I have wasted my time. In a sense, what Paul is saying is if I am the most religious of the religious people that you have ever known, that you can ever imagine, and it is not rooted and motivated in love for God and love for others, then it counts for nothing. And I'm wasting my time. The older brother doesn't understand the law of love. Of love. That God wants us to see Christ and his beauty and be falling more and more in love with him so that everything we do is in gratitude and joy and love, right? Not, not grumbling submission. Have to do this, have to do that. Can't do this, can't do that. That's why people stay out of church. Why don't they come? Because they don't want to turn into older brothers. Why would anybody want to? And the older brothers are so wrapped up in their own righteousness. They don't see the need for repentance. And what Jesus is saying is, guess what? Your spiritual heart is more dangerous than the people you criticize whose lives are a moral train wreck because they know they're lost and you don't. Second thing, second thing that the uh, older brother doesn't understand, he doesn't understand grace. The older brother's favorite hymn might be Amazing Grace, and he might come and sing it in church. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But maybe he doesn't really believe that he ever was really a wretch or still is a wretch. Or maybe he does and believes that there are other people out there who are more wretched than his wretchfulness and that God really doesn't want Amazing Grace for them. You understand? He, he doesn't understand grace, how big it is, how deep it is, that it encompasses, it encompasses the very people whose acts and behavior churn your stomach, which is why Jesus made the younger brother as bad as he did. To say you can't imagine somebody who has pushed the limits more than this person. And I'm going to hug and kiss them before they even repent. Just because they're, they're turning toward home. Okay, but the, the brother thinks grace is unfair. He wants justice. You want justice? Do you really? I don't. I want grace. He's like, the thing I don't like about grace is that it's given to people who are totally undeserving, like my younger brother. That's the very definition of grace. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. The younger brother doesn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. 
The older brother certainly doesn't deserve it either. He didn't like that. And misunderstanding grace, that is the most wretched spiritual state to be in because not only is the older brother alienated from God, not only is the older brother alienated from God's heart and what he's doing, he is alienated and so convinced that he is God's favorite because of his religious works, he is unlikely to repent and he forgets that he needs a savior. The people who need the savior really are those out there. No, it's him. It's him too. Do you see that the heart condition is far more dangerous? Because the younger brother was lost and he knew it. The older brother was lost and he didn't know it. Because all he could look at is himself and how he measured up favorably to his younger brother. Okay, we're going to turn this off soon. Number three, last thing he doesn't understand. The older brother doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the law of love. He doesn't understand grace. The older brother does, also doesn't understand what's worth celebrating. He thinks it's about him. He's worth celebrating. He sees the party as the father's party, his good-for-nothing brother's party, right? And the father's saying, no, don't do this. It's our party. If, if you had my heart, you'd see it's our party. This is worth celebrating. It's yours too. Come in, drink the wine, eat the steak, listen to the music, be in my love, be in my feast, be in my celebration because you're wrapped up in my heart which longs for those who are far from me to come home. And that includes you. That includes you. So you come home. This becomes your party too. When the lost come home, that's cause for the biggest celebration. And the older brothers don't understand that. Don't understand that. And Jesus said it twice earlier in this chapter. He starts off with a parable. If you have 100 sheep and, and 99 stay put and one leaves, he says, which one of you would go and get the, get the one? Now, we're greedy. So we say, of course, 100 is better than 99. No, he's saying that because none of them would do that. That's stupid, right? You have 99 sheep. You don't have to worry about the one that, that goes away. You leave and the, and the 99 somehow could, you know, could could get in trouble. He's saying, no, that lost one, I, I may not need it, but I want it. I love it. I'm going to get it. And at the end of that, he says in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy, more celebration, more partying in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the younger brother says, no, it's about the 99. You celebrate the 99. It's about me. And he's saying, have my heart. You don't know me. You don't know me. My heart is with that one. And if you were mine, your heart would be with that one. Regardless how wrecked they are. So if you're wrecked here, if your life is a train wreck, God loves you. If you spend your time thinking about all the people whose lives are train wrecked, God loves you too. And he's inviting both of us to come home, to come home. One from our rebellion and the other one from our righteousness. Do you see it? He goes on to tell a story of a coin. Now, there's a woman who has 10 coins. We're thinking, she's got 10 pennies. She's broke. No, this, each coin is like a day's wage, right? She's got 10 days wages in a community where people are living hand to mouth. She can buy anything she wants. She loses one coin. She turns over the couches. She's under the cars. She's doing everything to find the one lost coin. And her friends are saying, you don't need that coin. Yeah, but I want it. I love it. Jesus said, I'm going to go. I'm going to get that one coin and throw a party. At the end, he says this, just so, verse 10, I tell you, there is more joy 
before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, the coin that comes home. I don't need it, but I want it because I love it. I want everyone you think is not worth the trouble. I want every lost person home. That's what I celebrate the most. That's what your churches should celebrate the most. That's what you and your family should celebrate the most. And if you let me transform your heart, you will too. That's what he's saying. The elder brother doesn't get it. He's bitter because it's not catering to him. It's not making a big deal about him. It's not all about him. The service is not all about him. And if you're a devoted older brother who is into older brotherness, you'll find a place that'll let you be that. It's all about the lost. When you see the older brother's attitude, is it any wonder that the younger brother is so eager to leave home? End of the story. Jesus leaves us with a lot of questions. He intentionally leaves out one character from the story. Who does he leave out? The real older brother. The true older brother. The real older brother that he longs to have in that household. He told the story about the sheep. Somebody went after the sheep, the shepherd did, right? He tells the story about a coin, and somebody goes after the coin. He tells the story about a son, and who's going after him? That's the question he leaves us. Okay, if you're going to go after a sheep, which you don't need but you want, if you're going to go after a coin that you don't need but you want, and, and now it's a person, and you, who's going after him? That's the question. He's longing to have an older brother in the story, and he, in our imaginations, that would say, Father, Father, the worst thing possible has happened. I can't stand to see you heartbroken because your younger son, my brother, is gone, is off the reservation. He, I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's getting into, but I know he's not home. I know he's not blessed, and I know he's dying out there, whether he knows it or not, and I'm going. I'm going, and I don't care what it costs me. I'll go anywhere it takes to bring him home. I will spend whatever it takes, as much time as it takes to bring him home, as much money as it takes to bring him home. I will give my life to bring him home. If he's too weak, I will carry him home. I will do it if necessary. I will die on a cross for his sins to bring him home. That's what the younger brother does. That's what the older brother does. That's what the real older brother does. Jesus is the older brother, as it's supposed to be in this story. And he's calling to us, people of faith, people who name his name, to be that older brother who says, whatever it takes, anything short of sin, every dime you've given me, every hour you've given me, every, every opportunity you've given me, I'll endure any pain, any hardship to bring them home. We'll celebrate that in your glory. It isn't about me. The missing person in this story is the Savior because he loves the younger brother and he loves the older brother and he wants them both home. Younger brother, older brother. Sinners and tax collectors, Scribes and Pharisees. Two different ways of being alienated from God. One from rebellion and the other from religion. Right? Come home. Come home. Jesus is saying something very shocking. There are two ways to be alienated from me. 
One is being very immoral and breaking all the moral laws. And the other is fixating yourselves on being very moral and keeping all the moral laws and trusting in that. Because either way, you're trying to find a way to save yourself. So what happens? Well, he ends the narrated part of the story there. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to come home. The hugs and the kisses and the celebration awaits every single person who comes home, regardless of how long you've been gone or what you're into. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be all about bringing the younger brother home because that's what Jesus is all about. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not about all about bringing the younger brother home, no matter the cost, you're fooling yourself. Followers of Jesus Christ follow Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is after the younger brother. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. And if you're an older brother, it's time to come home. The only righteousness that counts is the righteousness that Christ gives us. It's not about us, it's about him. He was at home, he wasn't in the home. He was still on the property, he was still in church, he wasn't in the Father's heart. He was keeping a bunch of rules. And if you can do that and earn God's favor, then Christ died for nothing. Nothing message to the younger brother and the older brother is the same. Come home. Come home. In the story, the younger brother repents and comes home. The older brother is deciding if he will or he won't repent. Come home. Because to do so, he's got to let go of that thing that has defined him, his religious faithfulness. He's done all of these things, right? He knows he should come home. He knows his father's heart is yearning and pleading with him to come home. And he knows deep in his heart he's longing to come home. The ball is in his court, and he's not sure what to do with it. That's the next chapter of your life story. And what will the next chapter be? He came home. She came home. The time for younger brothers and older brothers to come home is now. Let Jesus write that next chapter in your life story. You know what Jesus wants to write. Ball's in your court. Will you let him? Let's pray.